On this episode of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we're going to be talking about the idea of having a new film studio set up in Hamilton. We're going to talk LRT, the three most dangerous letters in the Hamilton English language. Did Doug Ford settle any minds, put any minds at ease with his comments today to Mayor Fred Eisenberger? If he wants an LRT, he'll get an LRT. And... You definitely want to stick around because later on we're going to be chatting with the granddaughter of the man who took the most famous home movie in history. Alexander Zapruder, daughter of granddaughter of Abe Zapruder, is going to talk about what that video, what that film did to their family. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. So if you hear the story that Hamilton is interested, possibly, in creating, building, opening, clearing the way for a movie studio to open up in town. First thing that came to my mind, awesome, we'll have like Universal Studios with theme parks and rides and all that. Well, it's not going to be quite that, I don't think. But there is a proposal, there is an idea, that at the Barton Tiffany Lands, which is Barton Street uh, up North End, uh, Stewart Street, Caroline Street, that area, Tiffany, obviously, that we create, we allow to be created a movie studio that would potentially bring hundreds of jobs to this city. Doesn't sound like there's a downside to this, is there? Well, let me bring in Edward John, who is the city's of Hamilton's senior project manager for Urban Renewal. Edward, thanks for doing this today. No problem, Scott. How you doing? I'm great, thank you. Uh, some time ago, I think it was maybe back at the start of this year, I can't remember exactly, there was a report put out by the city that I read that said we have something like 100 film shoots a year in this city, and it brings in in the neighborhood of $12 million in spinoff money. Uh, already, it's clear that we must be doing something right for the film industry. We're already a good spot for filming, Correct. Absolutely. So our tourism uh, office has been doing a, a fantastic job, obviously attracting some of these shoots and uh, creating this uh, new investment in Hamilton. So the idea then, when you when you consider that we're already having things done here, I mean, The Handmaid's Tale was... Uh, my, uh, my desk at the Spectator Building was featured prominently in several scenes. It is much more famous than I will ever be, Edward, but uh, including a very uh, heated sex scene, but I won't even talk about that right now. Nonetheless, uh, the idea of putting a movie studio in this town that once upon a time may have sound insanely crazy, not so much anymore. Uh, absolutely not, no. So... Uh, it was part of our economic strategy to attract uh, a film studio to Hamilton. And, you know, over the past few months, you know, as we've tried to uh, speak and we've had studios come to Hamilton, it's these lands of Barton Tiffany that uh, seem to be uh, one of the, the top attractions for, for those studios. Why? Why is that air? I have not driven by there lately. Is it wide open land right now or would it require a lot of redevelopment? Why is that an attractive place? Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's a large, contiguous, vacant parcel of land, um, but it's also well situated. You know, it is you know close to the GO station down there on James Street. You know, it, it's close in proximity to the the downtown. And, and what we're hearing from the studios is, you know, they love to be near where things are happening, where they can you know find a great resource base in terms of uh, of crew and and workers to come through that uh, area. So you know, it's it's those types of things that have really made this attractive. The, the you talk about a large plot of land. Would I then be? A, would it be a correct assumption that what we'd be talking about here is a more of a campus type thing than just one giant high rise? Or, or am I wrong? 
That's right. So in terms of some of the studios we've spoken to, it's this more campus-style approach. So it's it's the soundstage, but also the affiliated post- and pre-production aspects, so office uses, and then those ancillary uses such as retail and even residential, which would uh, fulfill that kind of expectation for what they would achieve in that campus-like setting for the studio. That is the that is the word, and, and I'm glad you explained it. I'm, I'm hoping you can dive into a little more, because when we hear movie studio, and I was joking off the top about the Universal Studios thing with the giant theme park, but nonetheless, anyone who's ever been to Los Angeles and, or seen at the beginning of movies, the movie studio, we have, I think, an image in our mind of what that means. What would that actually mean? Would it actually be giant studios for filming, or is it more of a post-production and administrative offices kind of thing? So what we're hearing from the industry, that would be a combination of both. And I think when we look at these lands, which were obviously identified through the setting sales secondary plan to be mixed-use, commercial, and residential, you know, there's some reservations about an industrial looking film set, which is uh, typically um, the soundstage, which is the utilitarian looking building. Yes. So we're exploring that as we go through, and, and absolutely there's going to be a need for that in any studio where they have that ability to, to do the filming. Um, but we're also presenting them with the vision for the area and there is certain buy-in from those that have looked in this area and elsewhere in the city uh, about this idea of it not just being this kind of industrial feeling in terms of the park but an actual um, place-making area where there's going to be retail there's going to be office uses and you know encouraging the public to uh, to certain elements enter and, and be part of that landscape well while it doesn't necessarily uh, affect the economics of this one of the things I think people would want to be interested in or would be interested in is whether or not stars would actually be coming here to film as they have been before. But if there is actually going to be a soundstage, that's a possibility. We could have some people coming here that people would know. Absolutely. So, you know, that's where the productions and where the filming would take place. Um, but we, you know, we, we've been listening and there's also this element of, you know, Hamiltonians, you know, each day going to Toronto who are part of the workforce who also want to see this happen in Hamilton just because, you know, it, it reduces that commute and they can ply their trade where they live. How big would this be? So it depends. So right now we're just looking at adding these uses. So we don't have one studio lined up or anything like that, but we're looking at adding this to this particular area. Um, when we've spoken to some of those studios, it's anywhere between 500 to 2,000 jobs on, on any given day, given the uh, the scale of production. And obviously this content demand that's coming out of some of the streaming websites, such as Netflix and Hulu, which are really driving up those, those content requirements. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting about the proposal, proposed idea, that the city of Hamilton have a movie studio, build it, allow it to be built here, basically throw open the doors and say, yeah, we can do this. Let's have a campus-style movie studio. It's at the Barton Tiffany Lands is the target area. And just again, if people don't really know where that is, uh, think Barton Street from basically Lock to Bay. There's generally, and the north side of Barton Street. That's generally what we're talking about here. Uh, Edward John is the city of Hamilton's senior project manager for Urban Renewal. Edward, if this were to happen, would it be a fair leap of logic to assume that this would mean more shootings would be done? And I mean film shootings, not other kinds of shootings. More shooting would be done in the city of Hamilton? Certainly, yeah, the, the production side of it, both, both the pre and post. But yeah, the shooting in terms of uh, the soundstage will do that. I know Hamilton's experienced a lot of on-site shooting, which is, as you mentioned before, the hands made tail and, and other notable ones. Um, but this would be yeah, certainly that, that element increased for Hamilton. But if you have so many of this, these employees here that are in the film industry, it would seem to make some sense anyway that they would want to do some of their shoots nearby. It saves a lot of time and saves a lot of cost to be traveling all over the place. 
Absolutely. So there's that continuity. So, you know, you get the on-site stuff and then, you know, immediately you have this offering of a, of a studio to where they can do the inside stuff. Now, let me play cynic or critic for just one second, uh, because we have heard, and I'm sure you've heard this too, over the years, there have been people who have complained at times because roads have been shut down or there have been loud shoots that have been going on over the middle. Of the night. I think the when they f- shot the Hulk on Main Street or something else, people were complaining because there were Blackhawk helicopters and explosions, which, you know, I thought was great, but nonetheless. Um, is there any downside to this? Is is there any reason to think that this would be a downside because we'd have more things getting in the way, more inconveniences for people? And certainly that's part of the evaluation and in particular in this location. So we had a, an open house Monday evening and we heard some of those concerns, you know, traffic, noise. We also heard about this industrial feel where really people want a more public you know, fronting area. So, you know, those are parts of the process that we will need to evaluate in depth and obviously align with the current vision for the area before we proceed with the Barton Tiffany lands. But, you know, as a whole, the movie industry recognizes that if it is going to find a permanent location here, that it has to be a good neighbor. And, and you know, it's got to create those uh, good relations with the neighborhood itself. You mentioned the public meeting. I know you had one on Monday. What was the general feedback from that? So with a lot of the people I spoke to, I mean, there was general support. But as I said, there's these considerations and these concerns, which, you know, I, I feel really need to be uh, reviewed in detail. And that's probably the next step where we're at. We're consolidating all those comments. And, and as I mentioned, it, it focused kind of on the uh, the noise issue, the parking, the traffic, uh, and this idea of not being able to have this, this access to the waterfront if this was to be a typical kind of industrial park. So, you know, those types of elements will really need to be reviewed. And uh, once we've done that and we're in a position will uh, bring forward a report to council. There's no question that Hamilton in recent years has become much more of an artistic town. Supercrawl is a perfect example of what we can do with that. Should this, should the idea of a studio and the music industry and stuff, should it be all part of a bigger movement towards not necessarily an arts uh, flavor, which we have, but towards an arts industry? Can you do that? Can you build an arts industry in a city? Absolutely. And that was some of the discussion on Monday night. Creating this area, if we were to proceed, is more of an arts hub. So, you know, we had local artists and local people in the industry who were saying, you know, we're starving for, you know, affordable studio space. That If this could be the opportunity to not just have a movie studio, but to have a whole hub which is dedicated to fulfilling some of those needs ever present today for Hamiltonians, you know, and not just forward focus on, on the studio, but create this, this whole campus for, for everyone. And certainly, you know, that's an element to which we'll have to look into more. Yeah, and again, I don't want to be cynical about this, but there is a difference between an arts community and an arts industry. And one of them is a profit-driving, job-making, money-generating kind of thing. One is, the other is a very important part of the flavor of your life in the city. But can we, could there be an arts industry that is a uh, self-surviving, self-managing business? Absolutely. And some of that is coming through the consultation. You know, it needs to be kind of organically grown and and the city to assist with that. But, you know, we are in that consultation process where we are speaking to many of those who who wish to see that. And we're trying to achieve that as best we can. And does that then have to be in a cluster? You've heard about a cluster. Does it have to be in a cluster or can we have the industry spread out all over the city and still work as well? I mean, both can occur. I mean, I think when you get a critical mass and you get that clustering, you get benefits that way but also you know we don't need to to isolate this to one area or another area you know we want to try and you know succeed in you know encouraging this everywhere we can you know we've seen it come down james in in quite a you know a strong form but you know there's other pockets throughout the city which are equally as as positive in, in creating that kind of artistic community are we in competition 
with other places? Are other cities also vying for this same kind of thing? Yes. So, you know, we've, we've seen some of the recent media outlets, you know, I think one in uh, Mississauga and others who are, you know, identifying that they want to do exactly the same. So there's, there's a question of timing, and, and that's certainly something that we're looking at. Well, I just hope that you do promise that if we do this, you will actually go back to the idea I had at the beginning and make sure we have a theme park tied into this. <laughs> I w- I if we could have rides like a roller coaster right down James Street from this and all the way back, that would be great. Like, do something different with this. I'll take that on board when we start doing the process. <laughs> Edward John, he is the city's um, uh, senior project manager for Urban Renewal. Really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. Take care. It's, uh, it's certainly an interesting idea. If we could have a movie studio, not just a, like a f- storefront, a big actual working movie studio in this city, that would be cool. And if we can actually do it that would bring jobs and that would support itself and would boost the local economy, huh? All the better. Let's do it. Bring it on. And if it's filling empty land right now that otherwise is not going to be used and that can help the tax base, where's the downside to this? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Before I introduce what we're going to talk about for our next topic, let me just bring in our guest. He's a familiar voice, a familiar face, a familiar name to most of you. Uh, It is Brad Clark, Ward 9 Councillor-Elect who has five days left until he takes the oath of office and is no longer a private citizen. What are you doing for those five days? I'm enjoying myself. I make it sound like I'm going to get locked up. (laughs) Well, not locked up so much, but, you know, suddenly now you are public Brad Clark instead of private Brad Clark again. You've you've enjoyed a few years of the private citizen life. Uh, Yes, I did, actually. It was quite enjoyable. And I'm, I'm looking forward to serving the constituents in Ward 9 and and the broader city of Hamilton. Well, I hope those five days go nice and slowly and because uh, I have a feeling that the next four years are going to be quite busy. I think they're going to be remarkably busy, yes. The <laughs> <laughs> uh, reason I wanted to have you on is because you have been someone who, throughout the election and even since then, has been a voice about the LRT. Now, I know that LRT, and I say this every time we talk about it, and I apologize to the listeners because I know those three letters actually cause some people to go into seizure at this point because it's just, they want it to be done forever. But Doug Ford, Premier Doug Ford had some interesting comments today. Uh, He was speaking at a public event about the West Lincoln Hospital. I don't exactly know what the connection was, but someone asked him about the LRT and his exact quote was, he wants an LRT, he's going to get an LRT, he being Fred Eisenberger. Uh, You have suggested, Brad, quite strongly that the city should be demanding the province gives some sort of thing in writing to express where things are, assurances in writing. Does this comfort you to hear this on tape, to hear him say this, or does this change nothing? It, it doesn't change anything realistically. I, I mean, people will parse his words um, many times over and, and interpret them in different ways. The Premier has been consistent in his message that ultimately the council is democratically elected and they have to make that decision. And the message from the minister and the premier has been they support LRT or the billion dollars being used on local transit or some other form of infrastructure. Um, I like to see something in writing. I'd like to see um, an update uh, from the Ministry of Transportation exactly where we are on the LRT project. What is the projected cost? Um, and what are the options and restrictions? I still think we need to see that in writing as opposed to getting verbal comments uh, from the minister and the premier. 
Does that now that that has always been said in terms of the fact that we we've been told we could use the billion dollars for other infrastructure as opposed to the LRT. But at this point, when the government has said, when the Ford government has said that it's reviewing all infrastructure spending across the province, do you need it in writing now, even for the LRT, which was previously promised? Uh, Yes, and if I can explain, um, my uh, reticence is the escalation of the costs on the capital for the LRT. Um, you recall almost every single statement that's been made by the minister, the premier has been the billion dollars is there, the billion dollars is there. Um, but I've seen escalation in other LRT projects across the province where, you know, the costs have es- escalated significantly. And you, it could be as high as one point three or one point five billion dollars. We don't know. Um, but we do need to know that and we need to know who's going to pay for that um, escalation in, in cost. And if that is the case, if the cost has now gone up to 1.3 or 1.4 or 1.2, should the people who were on council who delayed this be blamed for that, that this could have been done before when the cost was lower? I don't think so, because I don't think any of the votes actually delayed the process. If you go back over the last 10 years, they just followed the Ministry of Transportation and Metrolink's process um, to the letter, and and large capital projects like this take time to, to get through the process. You have been a cabinet minister before. You've been at Queen's Park. You know how that works as well as you know, because you've been a councillor as well. You know how the municipal system works. How difficult is it to get a letter like what you're talking about or to get something in writing? I mean, we have this perception that the premier can just wave his hand and demand that his secretary, I guess, type something up and he'll sign it. But it, it, it can't be that simple. Uh, it's actually relatively simple, um, especially on a project that is in the midst of, of, of being developed. So in this case, what usually would happen is there would be a regional minister. We don't have a regional minister in Hamilton. We have um, MPP Donna Scully, who is parliamentary assistant to the Minister of Economic Development and Innovation. And so uh, what councils historically have done is they've requested through their local representative to the ministry to get an update. And I think that's the most prudent course of action. Um, and they would send a letter and, and here's the questions that we would like answers to. And they would provide those. Uh, it's in everyone's best interest to be transparent and, and crystal clear uh, in, in the terminology. And we all understand exactly where we stand. So are we looking then, and and maybe I'm just being obtuse with this, but are we looking for a letter that just answers some questions or are we looking for something that says, I, Doug Ford, promise you, double dog dare, cross my heart, hope to die, blah, 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 that you have a billion dollars for LRT? What what exactly, and again, I'm not trying to be silly, but what exactly are we wanting in writing? When the Ministry of Transportation or the Ministry of Infrastructure makes decisions on capital projects, there is always a process and there are always rules, in essence, rules of engagement. Here's what you can use the money for. Here's what you cannot use the money for. Here's what we will agree to pay. Here's what we will not agree to pay. We don't have those terms. Are we looking for a letter that guarantees the billion or can you not do that? I think the Premier has guaranteed the billion and I don't think the billion's in question. Okay. I think the question is, what if the costs are higher than a billion dollars? Who picks up that extra cost? That's one question. 
and and the other questions would be what are the restrictions if if council decides to use it on infrastructure what are the restrictions um, surely they're not giving us a billion dollars to to modify city hall i mean they would have to state very clearly what the restrictions are and, and we don't have that yet no we've already done that one for the billion dollars at city hall we don't need another billion oh we could use that let me take a break though while we contemplate what we could do with a billion here at the building uh come back with brad clark after this stay with us you're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with soon-to-be councillor Brad Clark, who just before the break completely threw me off when he suggested we should do something for a billion dollars at the 900 CHML studios. All I could come up with over the break was a yogurt machi- frozen yogurt machine in my office, which I don't even have a yo- an office yet, so I don't know if that helps or not, Brad. Oh, there we go. Now Brad's if on. There's, if, if, there, there, if there's a billion dollars that is available for infrastructure, there should be a clear rules from the ministry yes, absolutely. indicating how it's going to be spent. For example, on, on the LRT, when they started talking about replacing the sewer pipes, yes. um, the ministry made it very clear that they will replace the sewers and the water pipes to the same gauge, but they will not upgrade them. So they put a restriction in. It's those types of rules that we would expect to see on the billion dollars. And it would be nice to have those rules in advance. Can it be used for roads? Can it be used for sidewalks, sewer system? What can we actually utilize that money for? And then let's make an informed decision. In recent days, though, and, and I take your point well, because you have been arguing for this, if there is another option other than LRT, let us know what it is. So that is for sure you've been very clear on that. But in recent days, and I mentioned it a moment ago, there has been word out of Queen's Park that all infrastructure projects across the province are being reviewed. Everything is being looked at. So when you heard Doug Ford today say about Hamilton through Fred Eisenberger, if he wants an LRT, he'll get an LRT. Is that reassuring that somehow that project, for whatever that project is going to be, is still good to go, at least in his mind? I think the Premier is good for his word in terms of the commitment to the billion dollars, the commitment to LRT, if that's what Council wants to do. I think the devil is always in the details, mm-hmm. and we don't know those details. Well, the other so thing we can... don't know, Brad, is that th- th- today he could actually be saying this and really believe it, and then tomorrow could it not be the case where someone does some budgeting and says, we just don't have this money? Could that not happen? Ab- absolutely. I, I, I cannot disagree with that. Uh, I know for a fact that municipalities uh, are concerned that Hamilton is getting a free ride. They're getting 100% capital. And so there's complaints being filed with MPPs and ministers. And so there, that discussion is being had. But up till now, the Minister of Transportation, the Premier and, and, and MPP Donna Skelly have been consistent in that a billion dollars is there for the city. It can be used for LRT, transit or some unnamed approved infrastructure. Um, and they've been consistent in that regard. What we don't have answers for is what if the cost is going to be $1.5 billion mm-hmm. now? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, who pays the $500 million? Yeah, and my there is one other concern, and i got to be honest with this, whether we're in favor of LRT or not, for those who want this or want other things, 
I do remember, I don't know, how long ago was it? 10 years ago when Dalton McGinty was premier and stood in front of a big sign that promised, and he signed it and said, no taxes, no increase in taxes, and that lasted about 14 minutes before we had it. So even if a premier, even if we give Dalton McGinty the benefit of the doubt and say he truly at that moment believed that he was going to live up to that promise, there are things that come up in governing and sometimes things change whether we like it or not. Well, and, and, and most politicians, um, let me rephrase that, most people recognize that a politician can change their position based on the facts that are now presented to them. And so people understand that. Um, there will be some that would cry a flip-flop if that was the case. Um, but we like our politicians to deal with things based on substance, rationale, and evidence and, and come up with a decision and then explain why they made the decision. So, yes, he could change his mind. Um, the Minister of Finance could say, well, we're in worse shape than we thought, and, and all of the projects are off. We don't know. Um, yeah, but at yeah. this moment, we have the verbal commitment, and that's all we can go by. And a verbal commitment, just like in real life, if we're not counting politics as real life, or even if he wrote it down, is not a binding legal document, correct? The city of Hamilton, even if Premier Ford wrote down, I promise you, you get a, mil- a billion dollars. We could not take him to court if they pulled that back because the budget changed and say, well, here, you got to give it to us. That's correct. It would be pa- uh, political capital that he would be burning if he chose not to follow through on a written commitment in a letter, per se. se. But at the end of the day, what is binding is when there is actually a binding agreement between the province of Ontario and the city of Hamilton. And to date, we don't have that on anything. There is no binding agreement. We have an MOU, uh, which the last section of the MOU says is non-binding on both parties. That is Brad Clark, five days from now. Next time we talk to him, probably, he will be Councillor Brad Clark. All of his words will be much bigger and longer and more thesaurusy <laughs> because he will now be an elected official officially in office. Are but, you claiming I'm going to have more hot air? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. Just uh, We know that lots of people who are in elected office, not all, but like to use the $10 words what a 10-cent word could do. But, you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll hold you I'll to it. We'll see how this goes. <laughs> Brad Clark, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing have this. a great night. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Last Thursday was the 55th anniversary of the JFK assassination. You probably heard something about it. On that day, something in the news report, something, there was lots about it. Well, she is, my next guest is the granddaughter of one of the, what we thought would have been one of the peripheral people in the story, but someone who has become one of the most famous people in the story, one of the most compelling and most important people in the entire story of the JFK assassination. Her name is Alexandra Zapruder. Her father, grandfather, pardon me was the man who took the Zapruder film, Abraham Zapruder. She joins me now. Alexander, thanks for doing this today. Oh, thanks for having me. I am guessing, first of all, by the way, that every single person you've ever met when they hear your last name has said, wait, are you related to... That That must have come up all the time. It has, it has come up a lot. I'm not sure I would say every single person, but um, certainly a lot of people and, and certainly people of a certain generation... Um, you know, when I was growing up, people in my parents' generation uh, often, oftentimes recognized our name and asked us um, or asked my parents about it. It's something that I remember seeing uh, quite often as a child. I am 
positive that almost everybody listening knows the story of how your grandfather became well known to everybody. But for the five people listening who don't, uh, how did your grandfather end up as such a central figure in such an important part of American history? Well, my grandfather um, was a was a dressmaker. He was actually he had been a Jewish um, immigrant to America in 1920 as a 15 year old boy, and he eventually he and my grandmother moved to Dallas in 1941 for a business opportunity. And his at the time the business that he was running, his dress manufacturing company, was located at 501 Elm Street, which is just adjacent to Dealey Plaza. So he was. Um, there, very nearby where the President's motorcade was going to pass by. And he was also a very avid home movie maker, had been taking home movies since the 1930s. And he was a huge Kennedy fan. He, he really loved the President and was a big supporter. And so he, those three things combined um, to make him, you know, decide that he was going to leave his office with his movie camera and go right around the corner and, and try to get a, get a glimpse of the president in the final stretch of the motorcade. And I heard, and I don't know if this is true, but I heard this almost didn't happen. This film almost didn't happen because at one point he was considering just filming it from his office window. Is that correct? Right. Well, actually, that morning he had left the camera at home, in fact. Um, he had sort of thought he, maybe he wouldn't be able to see anything or maybe it wasn't worth trying to... Um, to film, and it was his assistant, Lillian Rogers, who insisted that he go home and get the camera. And so he did. Um, and then at that point, he decided to go out and scout a location, and she was the one who uh, who offered to stay back and, and watch the business when everybody went out to, to try to see the president. Most people, as I say, we won't go into all the details because the, the the story of how he got the uh, the film, the the scenes of what he shot that day, every, uh, people are familiar with that. But when he got that, and when he suddenly now is in possession of this film that is, I don't even know what the right word is, disturbing, I guess, is one of them, and and uh, so important, everything else. It, this must have been very difficult. The spot that he suddenly found himself in must have been exceedingly difficult, not just as a Jewish person in the American South at that time, but um, just holding that that movie and not knowing what to do with it. Right. Well, that was one of the things that I really wanted to grapple with in the book that I wrote about this, was sort of the, the moral dilemma that he faced and the practical problems that he faced. You know, immediately following the assassination, he was distraught, he was screaming, he was crying, he had, you know, seen the president the mortal wound to the president at close range through a, a telephoto lens in his movie camera. No one around him knew that the president was dead, but he knew um, without any doubt. And he was in that state when he was approached by a newspaper reporter who, you know, immediately saw him with the camera and wanted to know if he had caught anything on film. And that sort of, you know, kind of, sparked what followed throughout that whole day, which was a long process of trying to get the film developed and then get it duplicated and get it into the hands of the Secret Service. And all during that day, while he was trying to um, discharge this civic duty that he felt very strongly the most important thing was that the authorities have the film, he was increasingly being hounded by members of the media who were finding out that, that he had this 
this film and who suspected that it might uh, be valuable. So from the very first day, um, and I would say for the rest of his life, he was, you know, he was really marked by by this this traumatic thing that happened, and it and it certainly changed the course of the rest of his life. It also the the fact that he, as I've read and as I've understood, he grew up. Correct me if I'm wrong, but he grew up in unbelievable poverty. Is that correct? Right. And again, in my book, I really, you know, in our family, we never really talked much about the film when I was growing up. And so my decision to write a book about it was, you know, somewhat counterintuitive. But one of the things that I learned in really delving into the research was that, you know, he grew up incredibly poor, as as Jews tended to be in Imperial Russia. He was born in 1905. But also... Um, you know, he witnessed the and lived through the First World War, um, many anti-Semitic pogroms that took place, mm-hmm. he lost a brother um, during those years, and then the Bolshevik Revolution. So he had seen a lot and had been very marked by a very, very, very difficult, traumatic, painful childhood. And America really represented um, an opportunity for him, a, a chance to start a new life, to, you know, total faith and democracy. He was a real patriot of this country. And so I think it was um, doubly, equally, and maybe even doubly painful for him to see this unfold in America in a place that that didn't seem like a place where this could happen. Well, there's another part to this too, and that is this would have immediately put him into, I would guess, into a real conundrum of sorts, because you've suddenly got possession of this film that he had to know at that time, whether he was thinking about it or not, was incredibly important, but also incredibly valuable. And yet, if you turn around and sell this thing for all the money you can possibly squeeze out of somebody, mm-hmm. you are selling it for blood money as well. It's a tough yeah. spot to find yourself. It was. It was terrible for him. And I'll be honest with you, it was that that issue is really at the core of the book that I wrote because you know for that issue reverberated in our family for decades. It was my grandfather's dilemma. It became my father's dilemma because my father was the one who managed the film for 25 years, 1975. The film, Life Magazine had the film for 12 years, then returned it to our family in 1975, and my dad handled it for 25 years after that. And and all along, our family struggled to balance the public interest in the film, you know, the sense that this was something that was very important to people and that people wanted to see without exploiting it and without um, profiting from it in a way that was contrary to our own values. And we struggled with it. Sometimes we did better than other times, I think. But, you know, we always tried to do the right thing. But it certainly was not something that um, anyone could have anticipated or, you know, could have been prepared for. Yeah. In your studying of this, as you were writing the book, and by the way, I want to mention the book because it's a terrific book. It's called 26 Seconds. I've looked it up. It's available up here in Canada at Chapters at Indigo. You can find it on Kobo. There's all kinds of different places, 26 Seconds. But when you were researching this and looking into this, did he take grief or was it was it just a fear of his that he was going to be criticized for taking any money for this? Or did he, in fact, get criticized and, and experience grief for taking money for it? So I think my grandfather was very, very afraid of an anti-Semitic backlash for selling the film to Life magazine. And he um, that was a huge motivating factor for him in the decision to sell it to Life magazine, which was so well-respected and well-loved, versus any other 
um, newspaper. It was also part of why he insisted on very strict copyright uh, restrictions to, to make sure that it wasn't exploited. And also he took $25,000 of the money that he was paid and donated it to the widow of J.D. Tippett, who was the police officer killed in the movie theater by Oswald. And so he, he, he nevertheless feared um, an anti-Semitic backlash. I, to my knowledge, apart from, you know, one or two ugly letters, I don't think he did um, receive any, any real backlash. I will say that in the years that my father was managing the film and my coming of age, our family took enormous grief, not explicitly anti-Semitic, of course, but, um, but, but quite a lot of judgment and simplification, I think, of, of the complications of the story. And again, that was something that I really wanted to delve into, and I wanted to look at those criticisms and ask whether they were valid and where mm. they came from and why people felt the way that they did and how one might grapple with it and understand it, not from a defensive posture, but from a genuine effort to understand a very, very complicated past. I was watching an interview today with the Life reporter who was the gentleman who did the negotiating with your grandfather to actually buy it for Life magazine. Uh-huh. Uh, and he had a quote in that, and I wrote it down. It says, Abe Zapruder was haunted by the fact that he shot that film for the rest of his life. Was that true? Um, I think it was true. You know, Dick Dolly, the gentleman that you mentioned, is a dear, dear friend, and I, um, I, I loved meeting him in the course of this work, and it was very special for me because I didn't know my grandfather. So, you know, meeting Mr. Stolly was sort of like getting a, you know, a, having access to this, this part of my grandfather at this pivotal moment in his life. Um, I think my grandfather was, I, I don't know if he was, haunted for the rest of his life, but it certainly was a traumatic event, and it was something that, you know, as a 65-year-old, or at the time, 58-year-old Jewish immigrant from Russia, you know, he wasn't getting therapy, he didn't have counseling, or, you know, I think he just kind of went on with his life, but yes, he had nightmares, and yes, he tended to avoid uh, the subject of the assassination, and I think it was extremely painful for him, most of all because like so many others, millions and millions and millions of people in this country, he really loved the president. Mm. And he felt that his death was just a heartbreaking tragedy. And then on top of it, to be so closely associated through the accident of our peculiar name with it was, I think, was very, very painful. It it sounds from what you're describing, though, that there was... Uh, there was no joy for him, not for, obviously not in the killing, but there was no joy for him in being the person who had been the one to capture this and be the one whose name would be forever attached to it. Absolutely not. It was He, he said many times he would have given anything to not be the person who had taken the film, and my father felt the same way. You know, I grew up in a family where our relationship to this film is fraught and complicated, and we were raised always to understand that you know, it was a serious responsibility and something of a burden, but it was never something to, you know, to take lightly or, or take pride in. It mm. was, you know, it was an accident of fate, and it was our, our family's responsibility to be the best stewards that we could of this, of this object. And our actions were motivated, you know, always by a sense of needing to respect the Kennedy family and the memory of the president and balance that with with the needs of the American people to have access to this footage. 
Alexander, how old were you when you first saw the film, when you were introduced to it? You know, I don't really remember. I don't think I saw it before I was in high school. Um, I, I know that I knew about the film growing up, and I obviously heard people talking about it, and I wrote in my book about um, looking up my grandfather in William Manchester's book, Death of a President, and reading about him um, there. But I, I, my best recollection is that I saw the film for the first time when I was in high school, but it was not something that, you know, again, it was not something that we talked very much about. My father tended to compartmentalize it. And, of course, you know, at that time in the 1980s and even into the 90s, it wasn't so easy to see it. You had to try to see it. You know, now it's on YouTube, you know, six ways from Sunday. I mean, there, you know, there you can see it anytime you want. You can see it 24 hours a day if you want. But when I was growing up, it wasn't like that. You know, you it was not easy to get a copy of it. And so, um, you know, it, it was something that I would have had to, to make some effort to see. And my recollection is that I saw it um, as part in a history class at school. When did you then begin, or had you already understood what it really meant and, and, and how significant your grandfather had been as part of this whole drama? When did that I sort of click in? Yeah, I definitely did not understand that at all in my growing up years. And in fact... It wasn't until my father died, also rather young, as my, as my grandfather did, um, and I was sort of grappling with his death and the legacy of his life and the responsibility of the records related to the film that I began to think about um, what it would mean to, to write this story. And what, I came, what happened is that I began reading about the film and trying to educate myself about it in an attempt to organize our family's papers and kind of, you know, be a good steward of this history. And as I did so, I began to run into, you know, a lot of a lot of misinformation, mischaracterizations of our family. I began to realize that there were things I knew about us and about who my grandfather was that were not reflected in the public record. And I began to feel a very strong um, need to sort of fuse the private story of our family and the public story of the film into one more complete narrative than, than anything that existed. And so that was what motivated me, and I was ambivalent about it. It took a long time mm. to decide to do it, and it was complicated within our family. And, you know, and I wrote about all of that in the book. I mean, this book is as transparent as I could possibly be, because I think every family... Families have things that they don't talk about. Families, family stories touch history all the time. And we all have to, you know, to work to figure out, you know, how history has affected us and how we've, we've affected history. You were born, I believe, a year before your grandfather died. So you were one. So you, you obviously had not talked with your grandfather about these things. Do you wish you could have? Obviously, you wish you knew your grandfather, but do you wish you could have sat down and had a coffee and taken a couple hours and talked about this with him? Um, I suppose if I only had a couple of hours, there are a lot of other things I would have <laughs> but, but I would, if I got around to it, um, if I had enough time, I certainly would have, I certainly would have asked him. And I think, I think more than, than anything, I wish that he had lived long enough to know that we as a family were proud of him for, for his dignity and for his compassion and for his, um, you know, the balance that he 
showed in that moment, I think, um, I think that would have been a gratifying thing to be able to say to him. Do you know where the original copy of the Zapruder film is now? I certainly do. It's in the National Archives um, here in the United States, and it's the whole last part of the book deals with a highly contentious battle that our family had with the U.S. government over the disposition of that film. The film was owned by our family, and then in the 1990s, the, the federal government took the film from our family as a consequence of the JFK Act and triggered a, um, a long and involved uh, legal fight over it, which was turned out to be a very, very, very interesting thing to write about because it had to do with, you know, who owns the historical record and what the historical record is worth um, from a monetary standpoint and how one decides and how we, um, you know, make the best kinds of decisions that we can about the sort of iconic records, you know, of history. So that, that turned out to be fascinating. What about other memorabilia from the day? Because one of the things about this, there is the, the level of interest in JFK, largely, frankly, because of your grandfather's movie. But the level of interest in this entire thing is so high. There's so many people who are aficionados. I don't even know if that's the right word, but you know what I'm getting at. Um, what about other stuff? The suit that he was wearing, the hat that he was wearing. Like, ha- Have there been buyers? Have there been dealers? Have there been memorabilia people, JFK aficionados who have wanted to have come to the family to buy that stuff? Um, not that I'm aware of. I mean, the original camera is also in the National Archives. Um, I don't think there are any other uh, objects that anyone has, has asked us for. I mean, periodically, you know, people are interested in his signature or something like that. But um, he didn't, you know, of course, he didn't give autographs. He didn't do anything like that. It was not in keeping with his values and his sense about the assassination. I don't think anybody... Um, ever tried to buy his hat. <laughs> well, you know, it's that, one of those things that you know, yeah, sure. today... I mean, now that you mention it, sure. You yeah, have... I, am I correct that you have two children? I do. How did you... You must have at some point... Now, I don't know how old they are. I don't know if they're old enough to have had this talk, but how do you, now that you've studied this, now that you understand this, how do you explain this part of the history and the family legacy and everything else to them? Well, I have two children, and I have three nephews, and, and they raised in age from 4 to 13. And the children, with the exception of, of our youngest, um, my youngest nephew, um, all know about the film. Um, you know, we, we've taught them, in many ways, what we were taught, which is that, you know, our grandfather was was in this particular place, at this particular moment, he caught what turned out to be a very important piece of film footage. It is a very sad, tragic um, moment and and film, and that it has a very interesting, complicated history that they will learn about when they're old enough. And now, I mean, the big difference between when I was growing up and the case with my children and my nephews is that there's now, the story has now been told for our family. And a lot of the things that we never knew, you know, I've, I've, I've put down. So at some point when they're, when they're the right age and when they're ready, I'm sure that they will, will read it and they will, um, they will grapple with it. They all have my last name, our last name, my children as well, even though my husband obviously doesn't. Um, so we, you know, we have, we 
we know that there's a new generation of, of children with his name who will, you know, will have to grapple with it just as we did. We'll try to help them as best we can. Just before I let you go, Alexandra, in the year before he died, in your first year of life before he died, did he take any home movies of you? Are there Zapruder films of Alexandra Zapruder? <laughs> um, I don't think he took any of me. He definitely, he, he did, he lost his, his um, love of home movie making to some extent after the assassination, although he did, he did take some others of, um, of my cousins. I don't know about my brother. I don't think he did with me and my, I have a twin brother, with us because um, we lived in D.C. and he lived in Dallas and he was already sick. We were only actually, um, we were 10 months old when he died. And I think my understanding is that he only saw us once or twice in that time and he was already quite ill. So mm-hmm. I'm afraid he didn't take any any um, home movies of me, but he definitely did of my cousins. And we have, and we have many, many hours of his home movies that he took before the assassination and they are um they're private to our family they have no significance to anyone beyond us but it is certainly wonderful to have them this uh, her name is alexandra zapruder she is the author of a book called 26 seconds again it's available at chapters at indigo you can get it online you get it in the stores it's on kobo i believe uh it is the story of how the zapruder film affected her grandfather her parents her family it's a fascinating read. Alexandra, I sincerely appreciate taking the time to do this today. Thank you so much for having me. That is, uh, you know, one of the things that stands out about that that I find fascinating is that she points out that he wishes he had never been the one to have his name attached. He wishes he'd never got the film of that, that it had been someone else. And you look at where we are today when people whip out their cell phones and people would love to be the one who would get the film, the shot, the clip of something, hopefully not an assassination, but you know that people would love to have their name attached to this, that it would become so famous that I was the one who got that different times, different people, different scenario. Uh, Amazing what 55 years will do. And frankly, what a change in society in different places in society and how those things will affect stuff. A fascinating story. Again, the book is called 26 Seconds, if you're interested in knowing more about how this 55 years ago, last Thursday, how it affected their family. It's a really interesting story. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.